Thank you, Emmett. Uh, thank all of you. Somebody this morning said that feels good. It really does feel good. <laughs> yeah. This is the second time I've been to Omaha to speak, and uh, strangely enough, both times have been in this very room. Uh, I uh, spoke here four or five years ago at a meeting that Epley uh, tenth uh, anniversary, I think, and uh, it's the peculiar that it's the identical room I was in then. I wasn't very nervous then, and I'm very nervous now. <laughs> My wife lied to me. <laughs> she said to hang on to my self-pity. That's the only pity I was going to get. And there you are. <laughs> <laughs> we heard also somewhere that, that uh, you know, we kept thinking that we were uh, rejecting the idea that we were different than other people and uh, that we couldn't drink like other people. And... Uh, you know, I found a little semblance of uh, sanity in that. I really found out I was just like other people. It's just that I was looking at the wrong people. Now, when I found you, I'm just like you. So <laughs> I don't need to look any further. And uh, it feels very good, really, to be here sharing <clears throat> whatever value there might be in my story with you. I'd like to thank, before I start, uh, Dick and Mary Ann for their hospitality to me. I just... I've never been uh, <coughs> treated as royally as I have here this weekend. They, uh, Dick met me at the airport and, and uh, picked up Mary Ann and took us to dinner, and we came here last night, and we met afterwards, and we had breakfast at 8.30 this morning and uh, somewhere, I don't know where. Uh, I used to have blackouts and didn't know where I'd been. Now I've been gone from Omaha and don't know where I've been. But... Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've met uh, some people that some of you folks have met before I did that are related to me. John and Mike, uh, uh, who reside in Blair, Nebraska, and are partially at, at fault for my being here today. Uh, and Blanche. Uh, these are uh, cousins of mine whom uh, I was really pleased to have the opportunity to meet and visit with. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to meet them under these circumstances rather than a few years back. Maybe I did meet them a few years back. <laughs> a lot of my family came here today. Um, my sisters and my sister-in-law and uh, several of my nieces and at least one of my nephews and my son. And, and uh, they may not be glad they're here by the time I'm when John called me uh, a few weeks ago and asked me if I would come here, I was uh, comparing notes with him, and he told me that he and uh, Mike were in the program, and Blanche was in the program, and we talked about I was here, and my son was in the program, lives here in Omaha, and my sister had gone through treatment, and, and uh, got a brother that belongs in the program, and he... <laughs> And I said, well, what's the topic? And he said, well, I don't know, but it sounds like it ought to be the family disease kind of stuff. <laughs> I guess it really is a family disease. I've got a couple of brothers that don't drink that would do well to be in this program. They've got the same thinking patterns I have. Uh, but uh, you know that that's not appropriate to, to project that to them. And it's, 
but uh, if they see anything that they like, why, they're sure welcome to it also. You've heard several really beautiful people up here. Um, I thought Bill's story last night was really something. Bill still here? Did he leave? I, I think that was really a monument to this program. And uh, Alabama, you know, she's tough on the tear ducts. <laughs> I don't know anybody that can smile right at me and make me cry. Like, <laughs> and, you know, old-timers in the program that are willing to share with us um, really do us a, a service. But then we do them a service, too. I've heard them tell me that. If we weren't so screwed up, they wouldn't want to stay as well as they are. So they. <laughs> and Sue, I don't want you to ever meet my wife. <clears throat> if you wonder why we emptied the room between meetings, it's because we searched for weapons on the way back in. <laughs> I never was fat when I drank. I, was, I don't know what gutting me would be like. It was a little distracting to take time out to eat. I did get fat once when I was drinking, and I went on the drinking man's diet. Let me tell you that ollies are not the diet you ought to be on. They were the drunkest two years of my life, really. Anyway, I'm really happy to be here. I... Uh, I don't take notes for talks, but I had to remind myself about a joke I wanted to tell you. I stole this from a Jesuit priest, Father Reinert, who many of you probably have heard of. He used to travel around the country, and we always were glad to see him out in the sticks, you know, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and other places. And, and uh, he came around and told a joke about the fellow that, that did what he did. And I can relate to that. I live in Cheyenne. I practice in Denver. I've been to South Dakota, and I travel with the National Guard a lot, and I flew here today. And I, some days I really wonder where I am, and I haven't the foggiest idea what time it is because I've got two times in here, and neither one of them are Omaha. <laughs> but apparently this fellow did this quite a bit, traveled around, gave talks, you know, and so he got up to give a talk one day, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you how happy I am to be here in, in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, talking to the uh, to, to this uh, <laughs> group of AA members here, and uh, said, but before we open this meeting, I like to I like to uh, have us start it with a prayer in the name of uh, Jesus Christ. That's <laughs> <laughs> the end of my notes. <laughs> From here on in, you're going to have to suffer. <laughs> There isn't anything important in AA to tell for me except what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, what it's like right now, I don't want you to know about because I'm nervous. <laughs> I never gave a talk without a cigar before in my life, and I, was not, I gave up cigars for Lent. Lent's a period of preparation, you know, for Easter. And I always love it, you know, because Good Friday comes, and one of my favorite sayings is that there's no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. So when Good Friday gets here, I know it's going to be good. But I gave up cigars for Lent, 
and it didn't work. <laughs> but I keep kidding myself, you know. I'll buy one cigar, you know. I spent more money on gas going to the cigar store the last two weeks than I have on cigars. I get one at a time, you know. You probably drank like that once in a while. I just have one, you know, one quart, one case. One... So I got here with two or three cigars, and I chewed them and smoked them, and they're all gone, and I just didn't know what I was going to do, and I asked Dick to, to drive me out and look for a cigar store, and God, we drove all over town, and nobody in Omaha smoked, so we couldn't find a cigar store. I quit drinking so I can smoke good cigars now, and I won't smoke those cheap ones in the pharmacies, you know. I mean, I could smoke $10 cigars and be ahead. <laughs> but I do like, uh, I like cigars, and we looked, we couldn't find any, so I said, well, I will be done, you booger. <laughs> I saw Marv gave me a cigar last night. He's that funny-looking fat man in the red suit. <laughs> And he's not so funny looking that he didn't have a cigar for me, I'll tell you. Marv, I want to thank you. This program's given me the ability to stand up here and laugh at myself, because that's probably the most hilarious subject I know. And I do know where I am now. I am in Omaha in the state of Nebraska. I live in the state of Wyoming. But... Uh, let me tell you, the greatest state in the world is the state of sobriety. You know? That's the... And that's my hometown, too. So, uh, for the last ten years, I've uh, lived in that town of sobriety, and it's been very good to me. But it wasn't always that good. Somebody here had a happy home. I think Alabama said her family was nice, and... And uh, my family was nice, too. I'm the youngest of 14 children. And we were raised here in Omaha. My father was a professional man. He was a dentist here and was stricken down in his uh, prime years, I think at the age of 38, if I recall properly. Uh, that was before I was born, so I don't remember exactly. <laughs> he used to say, you weren't even a twinkle in my eye at that time. So. And... Uh, I guess when my folks got to me, why, they'd had the perfect child, and so they quit. Uh, was, well, that's not the way it was. <laughs> God, my oldest sister's here, so next to the oldest. <laughs> I guess they said I got so bad they quit. We had a very good family. I didn't know until later we weren't very wealthy. We were pretty poor, I guess. And my dad was an invalid for a number of years, and... Uh, and uh, Francis and my three older sisters went out and worked for a pittance in the Depression to put beans on our table, and, and I thought that's what women were supposed to do, take care of us. <laughs> it's, o it's only been recently that my wife has uh, straightened me out on that. <laughs> she says she'll take care of herself, but she's got her hands full. So I help her take care of herself. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I didn't realize what I had going for me at that time. And we didn't drink around my house to any memory that I have. That the drinking in my home was, uh, had nothing to do with my drinking later on, as far as I can discern. And uh, we all uh, went to Catholic uh, grade school and 
Went to Creighton Prep, went to Creighton University. God, I spent 17 years at Creighton University. Nobody, nobody ought to spend that many years with the Jesuits, you know. <laughs> and it uh, was a very healthy environment, I thought then, and I think it was now. I think that uh, the preparation I had given to me at that time has served me in good stead in later years, but it uh, didn't break through this disease for a long time. I was a very good boy. Francis will vouch for that. I was a, a nice boy. I went to school and I served mass and I did this and I did that. And uh, I was never spoiled either. I was the youngest of 14 and so I stood on my own two feet with these four older sisters and this mother. And But I really didn't do much in the order of the behavior that I did in later years until I was 14 years old. And I did realize there was something about our financial circumstances. I, never, I was never invited to Fair Acres to parties, you know. And uh, I worked quite a bit. I caddied and did this and did that and earned all the money that I needed, I think, basically to get along as all of my other brothers and sisters did. When I was 14 years old, I was a freshman at Creighton Prep. I'd gone into Creighton Prep uh, with the second highest score of the entrance exams that we had there and um, was a little annoyed that I wasn't first. Maybe that was a glimmer of what was to come. <laughs> and I never got a scholarship because they only gave one scholarship to each grade school and the, the one that was ahead of me was from the same grade school as I was and that really did annoy me. But uh, little did I know that Father Henry Sullivan, that some of you might remember, uh, he arranged for me to sweep out the two lunchrooms every noon hour. It was a very demanding task. It took uh, probably six minutes uh, each noon hour, you know, and I got my tuition free. And uh, it takes a pretty keen mind to see any good in that, you know, but, <laughs> but that's how I got through Creighton Prep, uh, through the not one-year scholarship, but actually I got through three or four years. I can't remember. I think I did that for three years. So, you know, it, it came out better. But when I was a freshman, and I saw all these people, and they'd all grown up, and I hadn't grown up. I was five foot one when I was a freshman in high school, and I was seemingly very small. As a matter of fact, I was very small. You know? <laughs> and we went out to a party one night that I wasn't invited to, and I can remember going out there as though it was yesterday. I was in the back end of one of these old panel trucks that a friend of mine owned. And uh, four or five of us, and we went to that party, and uh, it was out here in Fair Acres, back there in Fair Acres, wherever Fair Acres used to be. That was where all of the wealthy homes were at that time. I guess Regency and Points West is where it is now. But I had my first drink that night. I had a beer, and uh, life was never the same again. You've seen it in many, many stories. You've heard it from many, many podiums. And I think uh, Alabama or Bill, somebody said that, that it was uh, just the perfect thing. And it was amazing that I could go from five foot one to six foot tall in a matter of the course of drinking two beers and the next morning wake up being five foot one. That always baffled me. <laughs> but I can remember that night vividly. And then from that point on, I liked to drink beer. And I never understood that we'd go out and 
cruise around town as high schoolers used to do. I don't know what they do now, but uh, certainly they wouldn't do that. Drive around cars looking for girls, <laughs> drinking beer. They smoke a lot in cars anymore, I noticed. I don't, didn't know kids smoke cigarettes that much. They all have a funny odor to them, but I don't <laughs> But anyway, we used to go out and four or five of us would buy a couple of six-packs, and it didn't dawn on me, but, you know, one six-pack was for them and the other six-pack was for me. And that's really how it was with the drinking. And it wasn't that clearly delineated at that time, but as the years went on, that's the way I drank. And I got drunk when we'd go out. I made an ass of myself. I got into a lot of fights. As a, you know, uh, I got a brother that's a couple of years older than me. He was always pretty tough, I thought, my brother Joe. I think Joe took care of several people that were picking on me after I called them funny names. And uh, I always thanked Joe for that. I thought that was very nice of him. He never thought that was a good idea of mine to do, but he always <laughs> took care of me. I guess he was my enabler at that time. But anyway, the, uh, the drinking pattern from my first day was in that fashion. But that wasn't what really was crucial to my behavior down the road. At that time, I started doing some things that permeated my life for a number of years. In the first place, <clears throat> I used to find reasons for not divulging the exact truth to my folks where I was. And I would work out ways to come in when they weren't up or they weren't in the room I was going through and... Uh, you may recognize that as dishonesty. <laughs> I developed a pattern of dishonesty in my life that was divergent from what I had been before. I quit being interested, really, in going to Mass every day. I don't know that you have to go to Mass every day, but I did go to Mass every day before, or frequently, and I liked it, thought I, you know, that's what I should do, I wanted to do it, but that became less important to me. In other words, my spiritual values started drifting down. By the time I got out of high school, I want to tell you that uh, the second leading score going in was about the second leading score going out from the bottom. I went from A class to B class to C class to D class, <clears throat> and I graduated pretty low down in D class when I got out of Creighton Prep. Now, graduating from Prep was, uh, you know, sufficient, really, because I thought the Jesuits were pretty tough. <clears throat> but they didn't pull any punches, you know. They put the smart kids in A class and the dumb kids in D class. It wasn't, it wasn't any mystery to it. And I started in A and I wound up in D, and so I must have gotten dumber in four years. <laughs> but that wasn't why. The reason is I didn't study. I didn't think I needed to. I, was, uh, I knew how smart I was. I could cram for the exams, and I could get by. I could get by. Less than the best was good enough. I graduated from uh, high school, and I stayed here. And the reason I stayed here, and that was the year the Korean War started, is that I wanted to go to college. I had no idea why I wanted to go to college, but I wanted to go to college. I think that had just been inculcated into me from living in the environment I did where a lot of my siblings went to, to college. So I, uh, I don't think it had anything to do with the draft voluntarily. I think that the draft had something to do with that subconsciously, and I had to struggle a little with that later with guilt. But, uh, you know, I never gave any thought to not getting drafted and going to Korea. I just uh, thought it was more fun staying here drinking and playing poker and shooting pool and occasionally chasing girls. I chased girls a lot, I think. I can't remember. 
and I caught any. <laughs> I stayed here a year and a half, and Creighton said that they really weren't interested in me. There was a priest up there by the name of Father Bill Kelly. I think he's back up there now, but uh, he was the dean of men, or the dean of something, dean of arts, I guess. And uh, he told me that my grades weren't very good, but in the meantime, I'd gotten a scholarship to Marquette University with the Navy ROTC program. And it was a four-year scholarship with everything paid and some money on the side and all my books. And for a kid coming out of a family in which we had to work for everything, that was quite a, quite a good deal. I had turned that down when I graduated from high school, the very same scholarship. And uh, it led to a commission in the Navy. And I had a brother that had graduated from the Naval Academy. And I had another brother that was a Navy pilot. And, and uh, that appealed to me. So off I went to Marquette University for a year, and I had about a period from January of 1952 or so to the fall term, and they'd asked me not to come back to Creighton in the meantime. And so I uh, worked for that period of time to make enough money so I'd have enough to get through. Well, I, let me tell you, I didn't save a lot of money not going to school. It just <laughs> left me a lot more time to carouse around and drink. I worked out at a place called Charlie Osmond's Clothing Store, and I, I, uh, was, I was the best-dressed bum on the bread line. That's what I was. <laughs> I was still about five foot eight or something. I can't. I wasn't too big then. I wore a Hamburg hat and silk suits, and that wasn't the most ludicrous thing I could imagine. I'm embarrassed thinking about it today. But anyway, Charlie thought that it was good because I bought them from him. <laughs> But I drank a lot. Somebody brought up a name from the past. I worked for a fellow here, his son's still here, Andy Nelson. He used to sell used cars and trailers. And I got a job working for Andy. I took one of his cars home one night, and I got drunk. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I was driving down, down the street, and uh, I guess that was later. That was later, but uh, I guess I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> I got to Marquette University in September, and I can remember the day I got there just as vividly as it was yesterday. I took a pocketbook called The Old Man in the Sea, and I went down to Lake Michigan. Now, if you can envision Lake Michigan looking like the ocean, you've got a better imagination than me. But I sat there on the beach and read that whole damn book of Ernest Hemingway's, got drunk drinking beer on the beach, and I got lost. I mean, I couldn't find where I lived. I was renting a room from some nice lady that rented rooms to students, and uh, I had to take a streetcar, and I, and so I stopped downtown at a place called a Sportsman's Bar in Milwaukee, and uh, that was the year the Milwaukee Braves had come to Milwaukee, the, the uh, Boston Braves. And I was pretty drunk by then, but I got inside there, and I got drunker, and before the night was over, there was a very annoying fellow there that was uh, bothering me somewhat by people coming up and talking to him, and I finally I uh, got his attention and I picked a fight with him, and uh, it's by the grace of God that big men are given the wisdom to not punch little boys. <laughs> <laughs> Guy was Eddie Matthews, you know, he played third base for the <laughs> Milwaukee Braves. <laughs> a giant of a man off the field as well as on. <laughs> I got lost going home. I couldn't find my way home. And I find, you know, it was out. It wasn't right on the campus. And I uh, can remember finally getting some bearings. And I got off the streetcar, and I was jogging down the street, and I heard this noise next to me, and I stopped, and it 
stopped and jogged a little farther, and it, uh, I heard somebody following me. And I finally stopped under a street, and I, and I looked about a foot away. There was a big cyclone fence, and I was running alongside the zoo, and there was a big moose right on the other <laughs> side of it. <laughs> Never seen a moose. <laughs> Scared me to death. You know, you'd think that'd make a guy quit drinking, but uh, <laughs> uh, I got home and I didn't last in that room very long. That lady threw me out in short order. And uh, to make a long story short, in Milwaukee, I spent a year of drinking and carousing, drinking and carousing, and uh, not studying, and drinking and carousing, and not studying, and. I flunked uh, out of engineering school up there. I was in engineering. But I did uh, get enough credits that I went on the midshipman cruise with the Navy that summer. I didn't lose my scholarship. But the Navy had a little lower standards than the engineering department is what you get to derive from that. <clears throat> so we went to Norfolk, Virginia. And I got down there, and uh, they put us on a little boat, and that's why Bill's story fascinated me. His boat was uh, 32 feet long, I think, and, and this was a destroyer. They're only about 16 feet long, it looked like to me. I don't know how big they are. 300 feet, I guess. I never saw land again for 19 goddamn days, you know. <laughs> they, they made me sleep in one of these little things stacked like sardines. I had a headache for 19 days and about six months thereafter, and I never threw up. I would have loved to have thrown up, but I just had this horrible headache for 19 days. We got to Santos, Brazil. You don't know where Santos, Brazil is in all likelihood. If you know where Rio de Janeiro is, this is halfway around the world from there. It's at the southern end of uh, Brazil. It's a coffee exporting uh, port. In First time the American fleet had been in there since World War II. And I got my midshipman's uniform on and I went on board to spread the American dream, you know. And, <laughs> and I did what I, uh, I did, uh, what I have done many, many times. I uh, diverted from the people I started the evening out with to another group of people, to another group of people. I did that from the time I was in high school. I had three dates many nights, you know. I'd go out and come home, and uh, none of them worked, but I don't. <laughs> but I lost the people I started with. I wound up with someone else that I vaguely knew. The last people I knew, I didn't know at all. And uh, I woke up at 5 in the morning in the gutter in Santos, Brazil, in the warehouse district. You know, these people would kill you for a nickel because they don't have nickels. <laughs> Desperately poor people. Desperately poor people. The most fascinating thing I saw in South America, and it wasn't uh, fascinating good, it was fascinating bad, is the garbage heaps. They have mountains out there of garbage, literally. And the little kids, they looked like, I thought they were animals out there on those heaps, but they weren't. They were little kids scrounging around on these hills of garbage looking for food. And that's the kind of poverty they had down there. And why I would sleep for several hours at night in the side streets of Santos, Brazil, and not get rolled, you know, I had probably 30 or 40 or 50 dollars in my pocket, which was a fortune at that time in Brazil. <clears throat> anyway, I came back to the ship and was not welcomed with open arms. Uh, they confined me to the ship for the rest of that time I was aboard there. Now, there you are. You got a four-year scholarship. 
coming out of a place where I didn't have a shot at a college education that easily, a chance to see the world, you know, Uncle Sam's expense. All these other guys were doing that. They didn't get drunk every night, did they? And uh, I spent it all on this damn little boat that I'd spent 19 days on that I couldn't stand. So they said, you stay on the ship now. So he stayed there for a day or two and went to Rio de Janeiro. I wasn't able to go to Rio de Janeiro. Everybody else went, and they had a mass by the cardinal or bishop out there on the aircraft carrier that was with us. And Everybody went to Rio and had a good time. And then they left there, and they went to Trinidad Island and had a good time. And we got to Trinidad Island, and I was about ready to take over control of this business by then. And so I conned the officer of the deck out of letting me go ashore for a few minutes. You know, he didn't know about this business my wife told me about, about my self-pity. You know, he wanted to share it a little bit. So he had pity on me and let me go ashore. And about 30 seconds later, he re realized he'd been conned, and he started sending sailors after me. And they had a British officers club there, and I got in there, and I got drunk. And the sailor came and said I was supposed to go back to the ship, and I said, fine, let's have a beer first. And... And, you know, before the day was out, there were about eight sailors there, and me and myself, and we were all drunk. And, and we, I thought that was clever, you know. And I didn't get, we went to some nightclub, and I was spreading the image of the wonderful American by getting drunk in this nightclub, and I had one of these machetes that they have down there as a souvenir, and, and they had um, a black policeman there that wore bobby hats like the British, and... Uh, this uh, policeman told me that I really shouldn't be on the stage playing the Karachis and waving my machete, and so I took that as an insult, and we had a free-for-all down there, and uh, people love Americans after that, you know. They just think we're wonderful. <laughs> and I wound up running down the street waving this machete and uh, the policeman chasing me, and I lost him. But wound up in a jungle, and I had to... You know, getting lost uh, in a jungle is no pleasure, and the most common cause of death on Trinidad Island is snake bites. I didn't know that till the next day. But, <laughs> but I finally got to the wharf, and uh, you might appreciate this, Bill. I, I got to the wharf, and I interrupted some uh, some of that steaming of windows that you did at the at the drive-in theater. There was an officer there. I think he was a lieutenant or lieutenant commander. He was something big because he talked you know, like he knew what he was doing. So he had to be more than an engine. And uh, he was very uh, displeased that I interrupted his activities, but I told him I was lost. I didn't have my hat on, and that's not, that's not good manners in the Navy. I, I'd lost my tie, and uh, of course I wasn't supposed to be off the ship anyway. <laughs> so he said, well, what ship are you on? And I told him, and so he got out and looked around. I was looking for the taxi to get out to my ship out in the harbor. And uh, he pointed out to me very clearly that the one right up against the gangplank there was the ship I was on, and all I had to do was walk up the gangplank and get on it. <laughs> so they really told me I couldn't leave the ship then. And uh, after we disem uh, disembarked or whatever the hell you do from port, they left port. They shipped out. <laughs> they brought a bunch of booze on board. They brought a case of Gilby's gin and a case of B.O. and uh, marked them as light bulbs. And uh, 
By they, I mean the real Navy. You know, the executive officer had brought the VO, and uh, someone else had brought the Gilby's gin. So being pretty small still, I uh, was able to climb through the grill that they stuck him in for the supplies, and we stole both cases of booze. And the, and the snipes that worked down on the engine rooms took the gin, and, uh, and uh, the chief bosun's mate of the ship, who was a big old fat career guy that was uh, really ran the ship when the executive officer wasn't looking. He, uh, he and I took the VO down to the little place in the middle of the ship where you control the ship, and there were a lot of uh, big circuit breaker boxes down there, and uh, there were some empty ones, and the quart of VO just fit in there, you know, and they had a nice handle on them, and we gave some to the cooks, and so they brought us sandwiches, and, and uh, I ran that ship from down there for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I liked the Navy so well. <laughs> the, by that time, the executive officer realized his booze was gone, and he had the chief bosun make search the ship for his booze. Well, <laughs> strangely enough, he didn't find it. But they did find me, and they said, you know, you're not the stuff that naval officers are made of. And so they sent a ship alongside to send me back to the States, and that was the end of my Navy career. But they had to throw one last barb in me before I got home. This ship was coming alongside, and the uh, destroyer's pretty little, and this ship was pretty little, and they, they shoot something across with a line on it, and then they haul something bigger over, and pretty soon they got a rope there, and they send this sucker over on a bosun's chair, you know, and it was the photographer for the Navy. He was running around taking pictures of all the handsome midshipmen, you know. So, gee, they're going to send a photographer over here to take my picture. <laughs> Well, he got halfway over, and uh, there's a little hook they're supposed to hook on there, and they didn't hook it, and uh, those two ships rolled in together, and they rolled out. If you ever saw the biggest bow and arrow in your life, you should have seen that back go. <laughs> he must have wished he had some of that VO. I want to tell you, he was, looked like 200 feet in the air. Cameras going everywhere. <laughs> Well, they fished him out. Somebody always trails behind. They call it the lifeguard, and I, now I knew why. And then they brought that rope over and put another chair on there and told me to get in it. <laughs> well, what the hell kind of initiation is this? <laughs> I was really frightened getting in that boat. But they sent me over, and that was a merchant ship, actually, they put me on, and they sent me back to the States. And um, so I got back, and the day I hit Norfolk, they gave me a ticket to Omaha, and when I landed in Omaha, I was out of the Navy. You know, you'd think that if the Navy couldn't take six weeks of your drinking, you know, you, you know, you might have a drinking problem, especially when, you know, three of those weeks are at sea. <laughs> but it never dawned on me. It just never dawned on me. Within two weeks, I was downtown here at the old recruiting center, Talked to the sergeant down there, did a few things, and uh, the Air Force recruiter. And uh, by 9 o'clock that night, he and I were in the old Ivanhoe bar drunk, and he was signing my enlistment papers for training to be an Air Force pilot. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that's right. So anyway, I got to go be an Air Force pilot in a few months. And, 
And that's where Andy Nelson comes in. I knew he was in there somewhere. <laughs> Andy was kind enough to give me a job while I was waiting to go to pilot training, and the war was uh, just about... It ended about a month later, and things were in a state of flux. That was in the summer of 53, and so I didn't know when they'd call me, and they didn't know when they'd call me, and if they knew what they knew now, what they, what, if they knew then what they knew now, they wouldn't have called me, but they did finally in January, but I worked for Andy Nelson in the interim. And I think by this time already, you know, the mind was set in an alcoholic thinking way. And I, uh, I was driving that car I had borrowed from Andy one night, and I was down on uh, South Side somewhere, right in front of, I think, what's called the Polish Home or Polish Hall down there. And I uh, saw a police car in front of me, and it was 2.30 in the morning, and I had a bunch of booze in there, and I uh, wasn't quite 21 yet. And this damn policeman ran right into me from the front end. (laughs) (laughs) He said, one minute he's there, and the next minute I'm there. uh, Jeez. He got out, and he said, what happened? And I said, well, the throttle cable broke on my car. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm sure that's what happened. And uh, I've got the beer in my hand and the beer in the front seat and the driver's license. I'm 20. And he said, I'm telling you, officer, the throttle cable on the car, bro. Something happened. The engine went wide open, you know. And he lifted up the hood and we started the engine and the engine raced away and the throttle cable was broken on the car. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew it couldn't have been me, you know, because I was always a careful driver when I was drunk. I don't trust people that don't drink very much when they get drunk and drive because they don't have any experience. (laughs) The cops took me to jail and, you know, and I did the old managing bit. I called my father and my father knew the captain of the Southside Station and and to add insult to injury, the captain made the officer that arrested me drive me home. And uh, that's the first time a policeman enabled me. I think. That was the second time I'd been in jail, the first time I'm not real proud of because I was thrown in jail for attempted rape, and um, I was innocent, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I got drunk at homecoming, and we decided to steal a bunch of beer, and I bent the license plates down on this kid's car, and we whipped up to... He's a doctor, too, now. He's a wonderful guy, you know. The third guy's a dentist. He went astray. <laughs> 40th and Hamilton, there used to be a bar up there that had a, an elevator and a sidewalk, and they'd stack beer on there, then they'd go inside, and then they'd get the elevator key or whatever they did, and in the meantime, the beer's sitting out there on the elevator. And we chose a very propitious time to drive up there, and we whipped two of those suckers in the trunk, and off we went. And uh, we drank two cases of warm quarts of beer that day. And by 9 o'clock that night, we were drunk. And uh, we picked up some gal walking downtown that this other guy knew. And, uh, and the police stopped us a little later that night. And this guy that had picked this girl up leaped out of the car, rolled under the car, and disappeared. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? Well, he played baseball for Creighton, and he didn't want to lose his scholarship. The guy driving the car stopped, and the girl tore all her clothes off. What is going on here? <laughs> well, she's on parole from, uh, or on probation, 
And she wasn't supposed to be out, so she had her excuse. But anyway, we all got thrown in jail. And uh, my brother Joe came down again and got me out of jail the next day. <laughs> and uh, the guy that played baseball got out scot-free, and they dropped the charges on me if I'd buy her a new dress, which I thought was a little insulting. I didn't tear that goddamn dress. <laughs> and that was uh, basically the end of it as far as the police were concerned. About two months later, that little girl was found stuffed in a culvert on the way to Kansas City dead. She'd been murdered. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing to happen in your life. I thought it was peculiar that the police never came and asked me if I'd killed her. I would have if I'd been a policeman because I thought seriously about doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, the drinking got me into those scrapes. So I finally got into the Air Force, and I spent six weeks in, uh, in uh, training down there at San Antonio, and the first time we went to town, I got drunk, got in a fight, came back all disheveled. Next time I went to town, I got drunk, got in a fight, came back all disheveled. By this time, I'm a cadet lieutenant, so I used to, you know, I used to be able to command a little respect for my colleagues, and so... When I come in drunk at night at 12 o'clock, I'd call the barracks to attention. And uh, that's a great discipline action, you know. It makes you, they, they love you. <laughs> <laughs> Little shit, you know. <laughs> God, I'd have killed me if I was in. I got out of a pre-flight, went to Columbus, Mississippi, and had my first exposure to Southern Bells, Alabama. Mississippi State College for Women. But when I left there, I asked all of the people that were in my squadron to write a cr constructive critique of me before we left pre-flight. Now, I've, I've regretted that, but not recently. Uh, but about ten years ago, I regretted it. I took all those letters, and I vaguely read them. I don't know if I read them all or not. I think, uh, think not. But anyway, the, uh, the letters I kept... I got to primary, and I went to the cadet club, and I got drunk, and I beat up my squadron commander. And uh, I spent 13 weeks walking the ramp on weekends in the Columbus summer, and, and uh, that's, it's warm down in Mississippi in the summer, if any of you overlooked that. It's warm. Thirteen weeks later, I got off of uh, doing that, and I got drunk and beat up the group commander. <laughs> and, uh, and the Air Force said, uh, you know, by this time we're flying airplanes. We were flying T-6s at that time, and I used to have a bottle in the ceiling of my barracks with this little hole around the post that stuck up there, and I could rat hole it. I got a pharmacist, a student friend of mine here in Cheyenne, or in, uh, in Omaha. Am I in Omaha? <laughs> I asked him to send me some, uh, something to settle me down. I seemed to be nervous. <laughs> and I... In his wisdom, he sent me Donatol, which is good for a gut ache. But anyway, I was drinking uh, while I was flying in primary flight training. And uh, after the second altercation, the Air Force just said, you know, they really had better stuff to spend their time on. And the war was over, and they didn't need me anyway. And In fact, they washed 85% of my class out, but I think I'd have washed out any other day of the year, too, you know. And that really made me angry. 
And it really made me angry. And uh, you'd never believe who I got angry at. I had a brother that was a Navy pilot by this time. He was a year older than I was. And I was angry at him. You know, I was mad at Mike. This son of a bitch is up there flying, and I'm down here on the ground. Now, if you can make any sense out of that <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, then you're in the right room because you got the same kind of thinking I got. <laughs> I spent the rest of my time in the Air Force just drunk. That's about the long and the short of it. I was made an Airman Basic. I got into the medics. I drank my way through the rest of my enlistment. My base surgeon took some interest in me and encouraged me and helped me learn how to take x-rays And when I got out of the Air Force. I really made a firm decision to go back to Omaha, and something had been bugging me all this time. I carried my Philosophy of Being book that Henry Renard had written everywhere I went. And every night when I came home drunk, I read that thing. Ah, not every night, but a lot of nights. And uh, I thought that they were crazy, you know. So I came back here for two reasons. First of all, my father had uh, had a stroke, was of poor health, and uh, I think that had very little to do with it. I think there was an umbilical cord stretching to me. And But I was going to prove those Jesuits were wrong. And uh, now I still think they are, but I can't figure out how to prove it. <laughs> so I came back and went back to Creighton, and I majored in philosophy. And uh, needless to say, by the time I was done, I was convinced that I was wrong and they were right. And, uh, but I met my wife after I got home. Uh, my family moved. My mother and dad just had uh, some folks from the college living with them then, some girls. And they asked them to move out because their son was coming home, you know, and get the fatted calf out, and they let me live there. But on their conditions, my mother said, you live here on, on our rules. And uh, that lasted a short time, but a very short time. And I came home one night about one or two in the morning, drunk. And I don't know how old my mother was by this time. She must have been in her 60s. And she said, you know, the deal was it was by our rules, you know, and here you are doing the same thing. And I said uh, uh, something or other. And uh, before, the, uh, before that was over, you know, I punched my mother in the jaw. And uh, I don't know if any of my brothers had ever heard that or knew that. You know, I didn't ever want to tell them that to you because uh, they'd probably beat me up today if they knew that. So don't tell them that, Marty. <laughs> and my mother, uh, strangely enough, asked me to leave. <laughs> so I left, and, uh, and my wife-to-be moved into the house with my folks as one of the three or four girls that lived there. They took the girls back in there, and so I met my wife-to-be, and we dated, and, uh, and by this time I'm living at St. Catherine's Hospital, taking x-rays at night while I was going to school, and on the 4th of July that year, I'll never forget that, at Sullivan's Bar used to have a picnic, and I got drunk at that picnic, and they called me from the hospital, and I got picked up with drunken driving on the way to the hospital to take the x-rays, and, the, and then the nuns enabled me. The nuns came and bailed me out of jail so I could go take these emergency x-rays. <laughs> and then they fired me. <laughs> but but to, to quote a priest who's in the program, who you've probably all heard or heard his tapes, you know, he had a similar problem with some nuns, you know, he said he's forgiven those bitches, so it's, you know. <laughs> But 
My wife said, you know, I want to give you this engagement ring back because you drink too much. I said, well, I'll quit drinking. I never thought about that. <laughs> and so I wrote down on a piece of paper, I, James G. Howard, will never take another drop of alcoholic beverages the rest of my life for helping God. Dated it, signed it, gave it to my wife. I kept a copy, and she gave a copy to my brother, who's a Jesuit priest. <laughs> well, my brother, I'm sure, doesn't know where that is, and I lost mine years ago, but let me tell you something. <laughs> there's, there's one copy of that in existence, and you can guess where. <laughs> I didn't drink for five years. We got married. I worked hard. I got into medical school. We had baby after baby. By the time I finished my internship, we had five babies. And uh, worked, worked a lot. A lot of people helped us. But uh, we lived up in the hayloft of the old Heathy and Heathy Mortuary here on 38th and Farm, across from the Cottonwood Bar. <laughs> Cottonwood room. And uh, you know, don't ever, don't anybody ever give you that baloney about those being the best years of your life, you know, because they aren't. <laughs> they were miserable years for my wife. She didn't uh, carry pregnancies and with a lot of uh, uh, physically uh, comforting things, you know. She was uncomfortable with the last few pregnancies. Uh, we didn't have any uh, amenities of life, so to speak. She had to go up some stairs, and she had to go through the casket room to burn the, the trash, which I didn't think was any big deal, but she didn't think that normal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I took a year out between my second and third year of med school and, and uh, taught philosophy down here to these nuns at St. Mary's College. Made some money doing that. Worked out at Continental Can at night as a plant physician out there. And, uh, I, nobody ever asked me if I was a doctor. I just uh, took the job. And, uh, <laughs> I think the price was right for them, so they didn't care. I think they, they did that. They hired medical students to put one or two stitches in and then send you off to the hospital or whatever. And then what else did they? Oh, and I went to graduate school and got my master's degree because that's what I made most of my money at. I had a grant, so. But that stretched med school out for a year. And uh, I didn't know this until that long after I'd gotten sober. My wife and I were comparing notes. But uh, when I went back and uh, I, be I was a senior in medical school, I think, when I started drinking again. We'd ha always had a hard time placing this. But my wife and I both thought it was okay for me to have a little wine with our dinner one night. And uh, we didn't know any better. It's been five years since I had a drink. I was on the last legs, you know, and it's been a difficult struggle. And so we got a bottle of wine, and I had a glass of wine. And the next night I had two glasses of wine. And the next night I had a glass of wine while she was getting dinner. And let me tell you something, that before two or three weeks, I can't tell you exactly how long, but it was roughly three weeks, we lived on $225 a month for seven years. By that time there were seven of us. And no matter what we did, we had $225 a month. You know, we stuffed it in envelopes. We had haircut envelopes. We had newspaper envelopes. We had grocery envelopes. 
If there wasn't any money in the milk envelope, you didn't buy milk. It was pretty simple. Within two to three weeks, I was uh, stopping to have a beer on the way home and drinking two of the beers in the six-pack that I was bringing home on the way home <coughs> and uh, drinking wine with the dinner, finishing the six-pack after dinner and going out after dinner for more. And within two to three weeks, I was out here at the Dundee Dell on 50th and Dodge Saturday afternoon buying drinks for all of the businessmen that were in there watching whatever they were watching or doing. Big, big spenders, you know spending our $50 grocery money. That took about three weeks. Now, $50 isn't much, you know, in terms of dollars, but in terms of impact on our living, it was a lot of money. And that's how long it took for me to get, after five years, not drinking. Uh, lest you think that it isn't progressive, whether you're drinking or not. So I did drink. I got through those last years of and my internship because we were working 36 hours and off 12 and there wasn't much time other than that. And, and I went out to a rural town in Wyoming called Gillette, Wyoming, which was about 4,000 people at that time. And it had 2,500 roughnecks in town pretty quick with an oil boom. And that was the ideal setting for a drunk who's a big doc zilch in town who worked hard all day and by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, when he got done working, was ingratiated by all the people at the local tavern to have a drink because he worked so hard, Doc. And by 1 o'clock, I was down at the center bar, down with the roughnecks, getting in fist fights, rolling around on the floor. You know, it took me about three months to get into that state. And uh, those years, four years in Gillette, were hard drinking years. I worked hard, I drank hard, and I deserved to drink. And by that time, you know, the relationship between the alcohol and my behavior was pretty clear. So I knew what to do. We moved to Cheyenne. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced three years in Cheyenne and, uh, and then drank some more. And uh, I needed an office, so uh, I didn't have $17,000 to put up to refurbish this office, and so I, I did have $400. So I got the owner of this shopping center drunk and the real estate agent drunk, and I got drunk, and I bought a $500,000 shopping center with $400 that night. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm, I'm not only a big dog zilch, I'm an entrepreneur. You know? <laughs> Crazy. It's not a good deal for anybody. The guy that sold it to me died of cirrhosis. The last touch on that arrangement was that for the last $5,000 that I couldn't come up with, I give he and his wife free medical care the rest of their life. He was about 70 years old. That's <laughs> so okay. Well, it turned out that he had uh, gypped me on this deal. He had sold me a lease that he had already canceled, and we found a written release from the lease. And it was a big store, and they moved out shortly after I bought it. And so, the, you know, we caught him cold turkey on it, but in my grandiosity and my pride, I would not give the shopping center back to him. I mean, that would be the logical thing to do. I already found out I was in a negative cash flow with no cash, and uh, but my pride would not, I wanted, to, I wanted to be the owner of the Indian Hill Shopping Center, the little goddamn strip, ship, strip uh, shopping center that uh, wasn't anything, you know. But in Cheyenne, Wyoming, it was the biggest mall we had. 
Well, I went over to see that guy one night at his house, and he was pretty sick. And looked at him and told him what I thought, and I said, Now, Otis, if, uh, if I'd uh, zip somebody out of $5,000, and they knew it, and the patient knew it, and the doctor knew it, and he was the doctor, I seriously doubt if I'd call that doctor again, but you're welcome to call. <laughs> well, he never called again, but he died. Not so, he died of his cirrhosis. He died a blithering idiot of a wet brain and cirrhosis about four or five years later. A sad and costly tale. Well, I knew what was wrong by that time, and so one morning I walked in my office about 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I told my office girl that I was closing the office, and she said, what? And actually, I didn't say it quite like that. I used some four-letter words, like close this uh, blankety-blank office. And uh, I sent everybody home, and I locked the door, and I went home, and I never went back. <laughs> and I got home, and my wife says, what are you doing home? And I says, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I don't know what she thought then. It must be an interesting story. I've got to go to Al-Anon sometime and hear that. I spent two months trying to drink and think and uh, <laughs> came back here to uh, take my training in cardiology. I decided I, had a, I wasn't a big enough shot, so I'd come back and be a big shot and took my training as a cardiology. And Creighton accepted me and I knew the people up there and I moved my family back here, and we spent a year of me working every other night moonlighting in the emergency room, and every third night I worked as a resident on call, and every fourth night I got drunk. And after a year of that, my wife says, my goodness, I'm not sure there's any point in me being here. So she packed up and moved back to Cheyenne and, and took the kids, fortunately. <laughs> and so I bought an airplane, and the plan was I'd go home every two weekends. And I'd work every other weekend in the emergency room, which I did. And I never drank when I worked uh, up until then. And I started drinking when I was working right after that. And uh, I used to be, I used to go to Trentino Bar at noon, you know, and drink martinis up there at noon because nobody could smell the vodka. And, uh, have you heard of that? <laughs> I got called on the carpet once by the head of the department. I got called on the carpet a uh, second time by the dean of the medical school. And uh, Dr. Holthouse was the dean at that time. And he said, Jim, the president of the university has had three complaints about your public behavior and your drinking. And, you know, I thought that it, I think today that you really have to be pretty bizarre in Omaha to stand out with your drinking. <laughs> I mean, there's some real, there's some real lushes out there. <laughs> <clears throat> the president of the university had had three complaints about my drinking, and I had to do something about my drinking. And that was the sum and substance of the advice I was given, and that's the sum and substance, I think, of what the medical people knew at that time to do about drinking. And uh, I don't hold that against them or anything, but I just say it because that was the state of the art. Do something about your drinking, and I always did what I was told. Kind of. I quit drinking martinis at Trentino's at noon. I used to go down the street to another bar and drink my uh, martinis at noon. And by this time, I'm into my third year of my fellowship, and I'm doing coronary arteriograms on people. And I'd go back and uh, 
you know, after two, three, or four martinis, having been drunk the night before, get through the morning, sop and wet, get my martinis, come back and do coronary arteriograms and heart catheterizations on people. Somewhere in there you might find grounds for some injustice. <laughs> but God in his wisdom takes care of drunks and he takes care of the people that drunks take care of too. I never had a problem and I finished my residency until I got to Aurora, Nebraska on my way home where I got thrown in jail for being drunk. I used to fly home every other weekend, and I would uh, routinely land my airplane at North Platte, and I'd drink some beer there. The first time I got a six-pack to have when I got home to drink while I was at the airport waiting for my wife. Then it was, you know, I got a six-pack and drank it between North Platte and, Oma, and Cheyenne. And uh, then it was have two or three beers in North Platte, and then take a six-pack and drink that between North Platte and Cheyenne. And then I'd call my wife from the bar at the airport, and of course, with the beer she smelled on my breath was the beer I had when I called her, you know. I mean, she didn't suspect anything, unless I fell down. <laughs> and most of these flights were at night, about uh, 30% of them were on instruments in the clouds, and it was with a single-engine airplane with no autopilot, and, you know, the insanity of that is just beyond me. And I used to get drunk at uh, some places out on this end of town. And then I wind up down at Costello's Bar for some damn reason. It's down on, it used to be down on 16th Street. And uh, I used to get, get in about to 2 o'clock or so in the morning, and some nights I'd stay in the car and drink, and when it got to be almost light, I'd go over to Concert Bluffs, and I'd get my airplane out of the hangar, and I'd go fly. I did that probably eight or nine times, as near as I can recall. I just love that in the morning. Yeah, it's nice and calm. And uh, nobody was out and around. Nobody knew I was flying while I was drinking. And, uh, you know, and I just, I loved it. And, you know, the, the reality of that today makes me wonder what God had in mind for me. And, you know, I'd do all kinds of crazy things in the air. I just was exhilarating. And uh, somewhere I'm sure I was trying to kill myself. I'm not, you know, I couldn't pinpoint that. Well, I got back to Cheyenne after I got out of jail, and uh, all of the yellow ribbons that my kids had made and put on the trees, you know, for three long years coming home the night before were now drenched with water from the rain the night before while I was in jail, and it was a pretty bedraggled-looking tire yellow ribbon on the old oak tree scene, I'll tell you. But I went to work, and there wasn't anything really different. There was not one damn thing different. I got to Cheyenne, and I started my practice, and I drank, and I worked hard, and people thought I was wonderful, and I worked till 9 or 10 o'clock, and then I drank. And before uh, too long, I was rolling around on the floors in the local bars, and uh, finally with the other physicians, uh, having physical altercations in the bars, and they wouldn't say anything because they were just as bad as I was. And one day, my wife came into the into the office and said, what are you going to do about your drinking? Yeah, well, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, the kids used to say, Dad's home for viewing of the body. That's about what they saw at home. I ran her out of the office on the uh, 16th of November, 1975. I got an emergency call on Sunday to go to Gillette, Wyoming, 250 miles north, and put in a pacemaker. Somebody was dying up there. So I quickly said, yes, that's, I must go right away. It was noon. 
I drove to the airport, stopped at the bar, and about 3.30 I came out of the bar, <laughs> went to another bar. And at that bar I drank a couple of drinks and then I bought a pint or a half pint. And I went to my office and called my nurse and said, we have an emergency. Oh, and she met me at the airport. By this time I had drunk half of that bottle. I don't know if it was a pint or a half pint. I never found a goddamn bottle either you know, after I got back. Well, she didn't know I'd been drinking, and she got in the airplane, and I got in first, and then she got in, and we took off. And by this time, almost dark, we got to a place called Glendo Reservoir, which is halfway to Gillette, and Glendo Reservoir is a large reservoir in a mountainous area up there, and there's a 10,000-foot peak to the west of it, the reservoir over here. And right on the beach of the reservoir, there's an old dirt strip that used to be in, in use. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't land a super cub with balloon tires there in the daylight stone sober, you know. And it's pitch dark. I'm in a beach bonanza. And I whip around that uh, reservoir, and I, I landed on that little strip. And most of the time, there's cows there. And when there aren't cows there, it's underwater. I landed uneventfully, and my nurse got out. I saw her get out. She got out. And I got out. And I went to the bathroom there, right in front of her. <laughs> There's nothing abnormal about that. <laughs> That's what I had to land for. I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, you know, let's go to the bathroom when you have to go to the bathroom. And the real insanity came next. I got back in and told my nurse to get back in, and she got back in. <laughs> If she's out in this wilderness, I don't know what she'd have done if I'd have left her there. But she'd have been better off. And I took off. You know, I've looked at that strip hundreds of times since then, and I for the life of me came. And I flew to Gillette uneventfully and landed there, and I'm still drunk when I got to Gillette, and I landed. And the guy didn't need a pacemaker. God's still working overtime, you know. And they took me to the Legion Club up there for dinner, and this guy was going to fly my nurse back to Cheyenne that night in a big twin-engine pressurized aircraft with a professional pilot, and I said, no, no, you're not going to do that. So, well, the guy said, why not? And I said, I saw him over there drinking a beer with a steak. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant it. I meant it. I was in all of my dignity. I saw him. Now, I've been an F.A. medical examiner since 1964, you know. <laughs> if there was ever a testimony to the fact that knowledge isn't wisdom, I stand before you. <laughs> I can vouch for you that it is no substitute for virtue either. I had terrible guilt feelings these years. Somebody mentioned here they had a a value system they wanted to live by and they weren't living by. You know, I always kind of envied people that never had any value system. I believed in the value system I was raised in. I believe in it today. I by God couldn't live by that when I drank. Something had to get. It had to be the value system or it had to be the booze and guess who won. And I could not live by that value system and continue my drinking and my drinking behavior. And I rendered a grave many injustices to my children and to my wife, to my patients. I just remembered. I knew what I was going to talk about today, and I totally forgot it until just this second. <laughs> I thought about it in the airplane. 
It's just as well. I couldn't live by it, and the guilt was really tearing me up. And about the day I got back from Gillette, baby, I want to tell you, it was downhill. And I felt like I was in the spiral you've read about. I never read or heard about that before, but I really related to that when I heard it. I felt like I was in a spiral, and I had this feeling of impending doom. Jesus Christ, I'd been surrounded by it all these years and didn't know it. You know? <laughs> and uh, I just felt like something was going to happen. And the following Thursday, my wife came to the office and said, what are you going to do about this? She said, about what? And uh, she said, you're drinking. And I said, i got a lot of patients to take care of. Now get your butt out of here and let me get on with it. And she left, and I promptly closed the office and took my office help to the bar. Canceled the office. And I never went home Thursday night or Friday night or Saturday night, other than once or twice, I don't remember, you know. But Saturday night, I didn't go home. And that wife called Omaha here, as you can imagine, and talked to I can't remember if she talked to my priest brother or to Margie or to Francis. One of my sisters had gone through Epley, and Margie had gotten interested in Al-Anon. This is the wife of the flyer brother that I was mad at all these years. It's really goofy, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, they got together, and the next thing I know, Francis and my brother Mike had flown out to Cheyenne to pick me up. Well, I'm not even home yet. And besides, I had to go to Buffalo, Wyoming, up by Gillette that day at 2 o'clock because uh, the the governor was going to give me an award for helping set up a mental health center in my earlier years. (laughs) I got the first grant for a rural community mental health center in the United States by going back to Washington, D.C. and pounding on the desk and saying, you don't understand what it's like. You, if you only knew. <laughs> and we'd gone through channels and gotten turned down. I said, by God, I can handle that. And I went back to Washington, D.C., and I handled it. We got $285,000 in a five-county mental health center. And a psychiatrist, the guy that interviewed us, came out and stayed for 10 years. He needs a little help, too, I think. <laughs> I'd gone to see him about a week before, you know, to see about my drinking, and the first thing he told me was I had to stop drinking. And I wasn't going to fly all the way to Gillette to have some fool tell me to quit drinking to deal with my drinking problems. So. But that was the 10th anniversary of that, and the bishop, uh, the, the bishop, God, if our governor, if our bishop knew I was calling our governor a bishop, the governor was going to give me my award, so I couldn't go up. I had to go up there. But Mike came and Francis came and they landed and uh, I'd gotten home in the meantime and, and it was a scene I'll never forget. We live out on a hill north of Cheyenne and our house looks to the southwest and Long's Peak sits out there in Estes Park and it's a long way off, about 50 miles, but it was clear as a bell that day. My wife said, your brother's on his way here to get you. And he says, well, what do you mean? She says, well, he's going to take you back to Omaha to a treatment center. Now, when I drove up, the kids were going to Mass, you know, and, and, and my first remark out of the box was, you know, talk about getting in her face. I said, how come you're not going to Mass? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she said, well, your brother's coming to get you. I'll take you to Omaha. And I said, well, the hell he is. 
Then I went in my bedroom and I looked out that window and uh, I'd been trying to quit drinking for a long time. And I'd done all the things you've all done and heard done. I couldn't quit drinking. I couldn't quit drinking. And you know, when you do get down to the basics like that, it gets pretty simple. If I couldn't quit drinking and I couldn't function and I thought the world was coming to an end, maybe I ought to do something about my drinking. And I didn't know what to do, and they did, so maybe I ought to do what they did. So I went back out and I told my wife, okay. I looked at those mountains and, and uh, the thought came, that's what I ought to do. So I called, uh, she said, well, she had talked to my lawyer. She didn't tell me what she had talked to him about. Actually, what she had talked to him about is if I didn't go to Omaha, she was going to commit me. <laughs> but she didn't tell me that that day. <laughs> So I talked to this lawyer who was a good friend of mine, and I said, Jack, I'm going to go to Omaha. And I said, I don't have any money. And I said, Renee, you'll need money for the kids and the groceries. And he said, well, Jim, why don't you go to Omaha and do what you have to do, and uh, we'll take care of things here. And I said, well, okay, but don't forget to call Bill Allen, my banker, and tell him what's going on. And, tell him. and Jack said, Jim, why don't you go to Omaha and... <laughs> Do this guy make a great sponsor, you know? <laughs> they ever got in the program. <laughs> do what you need to do, and we'll take care of things here. And I said, Well, that's all right, but you got to call my accountant, my CPA. And I got some things. He said, Jim, you go to Omaha. And it was about this time that I started getting the hang of what Jack wanted me to do was go to Omaha. <laughs> came back to Omaha and in a rage volunteered myself to Epley. <laughs> I spent Thanksgiving and I spent Christmas and they let me out of there on New Year's Eve. And I went back to Cheyenne. And uh, it's been ten difficult years, but I've never met anybody whose life wasn't difficult. Never met anybody whose life wasn't difficult. If you believe you can buy buy happiness, take a look at the Marcoses. I mean, if that isn't a graphic example of a material appetite never being satisfied, you know, 3,000 pairs of shoes. You've got an appetite that can't be satisfied for shoes. You know? I went back to Omaha or Cheyenne and I went to AA, and AA was very good to me. I got sober in AA whatever sobriety I have. I went back to work. I called the hospital, told them where I was. Uh, in their stupidity, there was not a ripple made about it. They didn't know what to do because nobody had ever told them they were going to a treatment center before. I called the FAA and told them my license was no good. I didn't think. And the guy says, he didn't know either because nobody had ever turned their license in at that time. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. So I sent him my license. I hauled a bunch of people back here to Apley about every three weeks, to almost to the day, it seemed like. And uh, we call that two-stepping, you know. But uh, it kept me sober, and I don't think anybody ought to do that. I probably shouldn't have done it myself, but it kept me sober, so I guess I should have done that. If that's a paradox to you, I, uh, I didn't drink, and so it's okay. I heard a guy say in his program, I came in here and they said, just let go. 
Let go. God, I got here, it's tired of hearing it. Let go and let God. And things got rough about six months later, and all I heard was, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> And I can't imagine any other program in the world where you could tell anybody that and it makes sense. <laughs> and recovery's been 10 good years to me. I'm right in a state of turmoil. I closed my office again January 1st of this year. And I didn't close it for the same reasons. I closed it because of a lack of acceptance. I don't like the way the medical profession is now. I don't like the hospital's advertising, and I don't like HMOs and PPOs and IPPs and all these things. And, and I honestly don't know what to do. And I have a kind of a self-imposed sabbatical of sorts. I was going to study for some boards I take in September, but I closed my office in January, and I haven't started studying yet, so I think i got a little work to do on my steps. <laughs> But I, uh, I'm comfortable right now uh, to some degree, but not to a great degree. It's, a, it's not a time in my life that I would have selected. And to tell you the truth, when uh, John and Mike talked to me about coming here, I wasn't sure that I should come here uh, to talk. I should have come here to listen. But I don't think what I say is me. I just think I say whatever God puts in my mind, and I hadn't the foggiest idea what I was going to say before I come up here. And what's more, I haven't the foggiest idea what I said while I was up here. <laughs> Other than to say that 10 years of Al-Anon for my wife has allowed my wife to walk her track by herself. She's a good example to me. I have all my kids back. I think they all love me. Uh, my patients uh, never rejected me, you know, when I went back to practice. Patience. My family took me back. My wife and I settled all our problems in terms of resentments to the best of our ability at that time, and we, I think, I think that they're buried in the past. My kids took me back. My patients took me back. My office help took me back for a month, and they all quit. <laughs> and the people in the hospitals took me back. The people that I have the hardest time with are my peers. They really resent my going off and getting well. Um, or maybe they don't resent me getting well. But I don't have a relationship with my peers except the drunk ones. They have an impaired physicians group that we've got going there now, and I really relate to those drunks, her doctors. <laughs> because we all went to school and got the same thing. We got an MD at it. You know? grand degree. <laughs> and I don't think that I would have stayed sober for any length of time at all because I've taken seven other doctors back to treatment and none of them are in AA. None of them are sober, except one. And uh, one had been in AA for 20 years off and on and then he moved to St. Louis and he's in AA. But I don't count him. He 12-stepped me while he was drunk as much as I 12-stepped him. And I, so, you know, I have to look back and say, you look at all these things, and uh, should, I, should I worry about the fact that I don't have any income now, and that I don't have an office and a practice, and that I don't like the way medicine is? I'm going to have to come to grips with the fact the world. If I gave up running the world 10 years ago, then I really can't criticize the world for the way it is today. 
and I, I don't honestly know what to do, and uh, I'm sure that come September when I take my boards, I will uh, be told what to do at that time. And I really don't have a lot of hang-up about that, a little bit, not much. So we trudged the road of life together, and uh, I've been very privileged to come talk to you. I talk more about my drinking than my recovery, but I guess uh, I can't help that. I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> I want to thank you very much, and I hope to see you again.